Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 12. We're going to look at the faithful providence of God. But before we really dig into this, I want to explain to you the, the doctrine of providence because I don't know, many people don't understand or have never heard maybe even this doctrine. The doctrine of providence is a term that we use that is, uh, describes, God's, <laughs> describes God's plan of action in the universe he created. It's a doctrine. God is the all-powerful creator of all matter and life. It starts with that. He's the creator of everything. He dictates all that will happen with a permanent result in mind. That's God's way of thinking about it. So, providence is God continually involved with all created things in such a way that directs all those things to fulfill his purposes. That's what providence is. It's God continually involved with all the created things in such a way that directs all created things to fulfill his purposes. And in regard to the church, God is always involved, always involved in the permanent direction and events of a church because the church is here to bring him glory. Even when we make mistakes and do things we shouldn't do, God will use that. Unfortunately, we make mistakes, and, but God still uses it. And God is always seeking to receive glory from his church and from the body of believers. All events, all trials, all persecutions, and prosperity he uses to that end. His glory and his worship. That's what providence is. And so in these passages we're going to look at, we're, we've been kind of skipping through Acts a little bit, to look at the first few decades of the first church, the birth of the evangelical Christian church. And today we're going to see a difficult situation that Luke gives us in chapter 12. Um, has some unusual things that happened that they weren't expecting, and then some wonderful things that happened that they <laughs> weren't expecting. So follow along as I read Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers, each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but... The church was praying fervently to God for him. When Herod was about to bring him out for trial that very night, Peter, bound, between, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed. And he did not know that what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp 
and from all that the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, (laughs) she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that he was true. And they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said. And he left and went to another place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Let's pray. Father, it is is always under your omnipotent, almighty, omniscient hand that we see things like this happen. And many times we scratch our heads. We don't understand why that particular order of events or that particular thing happened. But because of faith, we can trust your providence. We can trust your plan. We can trust your purposes because you are a loving and gracious and perfect God. So help us to see that this morning and and from this story, get a renewed and refreshed idea about what prayer means to our faith in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So about 14 years after Jesus ascended, this happens. Herod decides to attack the church, and he does it violently. But God is going to providentially use this for his plan and for his glory. And so the providential hand of God, that's, that's what we want to see through all this, governs the church today, and our fervent prayers are part of it. They're part of it. So how are our prayers how, do, how can our prayers work in the providence of God? Well, prayers and faith connect us with God's sovereign providence as the kingdom goes forth. I only have one point today, which at least every sermon should have at least one point. And so I only have one point today. So God's providence is found in prayer. It's found in the prayer of this church as they pray for the Peter's release. I want to walk through this story, and I want you to see them, the mighty hand of God ushering his church and bringing him glory. Providence in Scripture teaches that nothing is outside the purposes of God. So we see in verses 1 and 2 that Herod begins to attack the church. Now, this is not the Herod that Jesus stood before at his trial. This is a different Herod. Um, Herod became kind of like a word like Pharaoh that's used for any king over that's installed. But all the Herods were established by Rome. So this is Herod Agrippa I, if you care, if you're a history buff. Not the one that mocked Jesus. He was deposed by Caesar around 40 AD. This Herod is a nephew to that Herod and a grandson to Herod the Great, who died around 6 uh, BC, 4 BC. This, this Herod, Agrippa, took office about 41 AD, and he was over Palestine, the whole area. Galilee, Samaria, Judea, Jerusalem. He was over that entire area. Pilate was gone. He had been called back to Rome, usually probably because of something he did wrong. But 
he, the, the Roman government, the Caesar, at that time, the emperor decided to give Herod Agrippa the entire swath of that, prop, of that land. And this guy was a politician. Now, his mother was a Jew, and she was from the line of the Maccabees, if you care, which were heroes during the intertestinal period who defeated all kinds of enemies. So that's one of the ways, reasons the Jews liked this Herod. They didn't like some of the others, but they liked this Herod. But his father was still Idumean, which is a descendant of Esau. But he wanted to stay in favor with the Jews. So he said, I, I know what I can do. I can, I can inflict some pain on this Jesus sect. Because one of the things that was aggravating him by this point, we're 14 years down the road from Jesus' ascension, is Gentiles were being introduced to the Messiah. Even though they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Jewish leaders of the religion didn't like it. They hated that idea. They hated the idea that the Gentiles had any part. Now, that's, by the way, that's us right here, okay? The Gentiles had any part in the Jewish faith. They didn't like that at all. Herod knew that. He took advantage of that. And so he had James executed. James, the brother of Zebedee, I mean the son of Zebedee, John the apostle's brother. And he did this to make the Sanhedrin happy. And it worked. They were excited. But see, providence is still in play here because Herod Agrippa I and the Sanhedrin thought, if we kill off one of the apostles, they'll stop this preaching of Jesus and they'll stop all this nonsense that's going on. Wrong. Wrong. So wrong. So when it didn't stop, Herod got greedy and he arrested Peter with intentions to murder Peter. That was the goal. He was going to bring him out after the Passover and behead him just like he had done James. That was his intention. And he would maximize his exposure to all kinds of crowd. Because remember, we've said this before, when Passover happens, everybody's there in Jerusalem. Okay, So there's huge crowds, huge crowds. And so after the seven days of Feast of Unleavened Bread, Herod was going to bring out Peter, introduce him as the head of the Jerusalem church, and cut his head off. But it didn't happen such that way. God doesn't play political games, and his plans always have eternal purposes. So you see in verse 4 that Peter's imprisoned with a heavy rotating detachment of guards. Now these guards are probably Roman guards because Herod is there as the Roman prefect in a sense, as a Roman representative. So he has 16 guards. They rotate in shifts during the night. He sleeps between two and two are outside the gate. And they thought, there's no way Peter can get out of here. No way. <laughs> There is way. Herod's pride was, was, he was, he was not going to, see, he was not going to be the laughing stock of Palestine and of Rome. The Sanhedrin had, cha- had uh, jailed the apostles before, back in chapter 5, put them in prison, all 12 of them, and they got out. And then they had to ask them to kindly come back to their trial. But the Sanhedrin had lost the apostles. Pilate, even worse, had lost the body of Jesus Christ. And so Herod Agrippa was not going to be the laughingstock of Palestine. He was going to make sure that Peter didn't get out. Herod was going to show the Jews and Rome that he was better than them. He could handle it. <laughs> Peter was in prison. And the church was fervently, earnestly praying. And this is kind of the center point of the story. They were looking to God 
They were coming to God, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. They were earnestly praying. This, this word here in the Greek actually points to the same kind of earnestness and straining that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat drops of blood. They're praying that hard. That's the way Luke describes it in this account. Now, the church prayed for James, okay? I don't want you to think they didn't pray for James, okay? Uh, poor James. He got prayed for. I'm sure he did. But they were praying probably from the idea that no one had ever been killed before. They were probably praying, just get him out of prison as soon as you can, God. I know you're going to get him out of prison. I mean, they were probably living off of the past victories, the past prayers. They didn't suspect that this was going to go that far. I don't think James got a, a, a quick, any kind of trial. I think it was pretty immediate from what I gather from the history books. It didn't really sit around and wait like he's doing with Peter, but... Herod changed it with James. So now the church is praying just a little bit differently. They're praying for Peter's life, not just his freedom. So they're stepping up their game a little probably in prayer, but I'm pretty sure that had an effect on their faith. I mean, they prayed for James, and he was beheaded. Their prayers for James were just as sincere and just as strenuous, I think, as, as the ones for Peter. But Peter was in grave danger. He was, he was awaiting a terrible outcome. So their prayers changed a little bit of focus. They were, they were really looking for God's providence here, but they were asking for what they wanted. They wanted Peter safe. But we find out later they really weren't expecting it. God gave them their request because God wanted to save Peter. God wanted to save Peter. He wanted the glory, not Herod, not the Sanhedrin. So, the night before, the 11th hour is coming down to the wire in the middle of the night. God sends an angel to rescue Peter miraculously. Peter has to be woken up. I always thought that was funny. You know, if I was in prison and I was probably going to be killed the next day, I probably wouldn't be sleeping. Peter's sleeping. So sound that the guy, angel had to kick him in the side. Had to get him awake. Now, I think there's two reasons why Peter was sleeping. First of all, Jesus had told him... You look at the end of John, the Apostle John, Gospel of John. Jesus had told him, you won't die till you're an old man. When you're an old man, someone will lead you to where you don't want to go. So that's one reason. Peter was pretty sure he wasn't going to die. He didn't know how God was going to pull this off, but he was pretty sure he wasn't going to die. The second reason was that God had saved him before. So he's trusting God to do it again because he was told he wouldn't die till he's an old man. But Old could be a relative term back then, like it is kind of today. <laughs> if he didn't get rescued by God, he would go home. He would be in the presence of his Savior. So I think Peter was just at peace, complete, perfect peace. His eternal home was secure. But the angel wakes him up anyway, tells him to get dressed, put on your shoes. He has to tell him everything. Wrap your cloak around you, and then the chains fall off of Peter's wrist. One chain to one guard, one chain to the other guard. They just fall off. They walk past four, four guards. They make it to the massive iron gate at Antonio Fortress, which is the Roman-built fortress just on the northwest side of the temple area. And this iron gate that protects the prison from the city just opens. Peter and the angel walk through. They go one block from the prison. The angel disappears. And Peter wakes up finally, completely awake. He's no longer going, is this a dream? I mean, I don't know about you, but I've dreamed like that. Like, I wake up and I go, no, I'm not where I thought I was. Whew, good. Um, he goes, wow. 
And he knows this right off the bat. God saved him. God saved him from this. God saved him from that. And he, and he interprets it right there. He says, it's not for my personality. It's not for my great leadership at the church. It's not for my character that God saved me. It's that God wanted to deny Herod and the Sanhedrin any of his own glory. Peter had a pretty strong personality, but that's not why God saved him. It wasn't for Peter's special gifts. It wasn't that he was a righteous man. It was that God wanted to save him. And he did. For his glory. God's providence was the ultimate reason that Peter was freed miraculously. And God knew these two, Herod and the Sanhedrin, were never going to give him glory, the glory he was looking for, through his son Jesus Christ. He knew they just wanted their own glory by harming the body of Christ, the body of his son, the church. So don't forget providence. Remember providence. God's purpose is for his glory in all matters of life. So God's providence is still working on here. In verse 12, it goes on. Now Peter goes and he seeks to give God the glory by going to the church that's meeting at Mary's house. See, the churches didn't have a building like this back then. They were, that church was scattered all over Jerusalem. It was a little smaller church, I think, by this point because of the, of the dispersion from Stephen's persecution and other things. So they were, but they were still meeting in house churches, and Peter knew that there was a group of people praying for him at Mary's house, John Mark's mother. John Mark, by the way, is the cousin of Barnabas, which we talked about last week. So if you want to connect some dots, there you go. So he goes, and he knows, I'm going to tell them, and he knew they were praying. He knew that this was the same group that had prayed for James. He wants them to see the fruit of their prayers. So he goes there, and he knocks, knocks on the, the, the gate, and we know this is probably a large house simply for the fact that it has an outer gate. Most houses that weren't large didn't have a courtyard like this one. So he knocks on the gate. He wants to give God glory, and he calls out, and Rhoda, sweet Rhoda, she hears him call out. She's watching the outer gate. She's probably standing guard because they don't know what's going to happen next. Herod's changed the whole game of persecution. So she's kind of watching out for troops or soldiers or anything unusual. And she hears Peter's voice. And she's so excited and so joyful, she just runs back inside to tell him, hey, Peter's outside. I can just see that. But disbelief comes from the rest of them. You're out of your mind. You've lost your cottontail-picking mind. And, and they're like, there's no way. But isn't that what they prayed for? Isn't that what they prayed for? Don't we do that? <laughs> that's just a, that's a free application for you there. Yes, but, but James wasn't saved. James wasn't saved and we prayed. So their faith had taken a little hit. Just like pruning a tree or a bush, you got to cut some back sometimes for it to grow healthier. And so their faith had taken a little hit. They think, she's lost it. She's out of her mind. There's no way. It must be his guardian angel. That was what they meant by the angel. No, really, Peter is there, and he keeps knocking. And finally, they open the gate, and there he is, and they're amazed. Their shouts at that hour, they were amazed, and they probably exclaimed. And, of course, that would have drawn attention to them in the middle of the night. But Peter quiets them down, tells them the story, instructs them to pass it on to the church, the church leaders. And then he disappears. Peter hides to prevent more trouble on the church than, 
than, than himself. He's not worried about himself. Obviously, he was sleeping when the angel woke him up. He's worried about the church getting afflicted by this, so he wants to kind of run off and hide because he understands suffering. Now, the church leader was now James. No, not the James that got executed. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. The brother, one of the brothers that didn't believe in Jesus when Jesus was on the earth. But James received a special appearance from Christ. You read about that in 1 Corinthians 15. He was specifically visited by Jesus, his brother. He is now the head of the church in Jerusalem. He is now the leader. And the brothers that he talks to would probably be the elders that had been appointed to be in charge and help lead that church. Because at this point, I'm sure after James's head was cut off, the apostles were beginning to kind of hide and duck and cover and, and, and spread out um, a little bit more, try to not be so easily found. They had established some alternate leadership, as we talked about a little bit last week. And so he wants them to go tell James and the brothers what happened. And then God works out his providence even more. Verses 18 through 19. The guards, are fr- <laughs> the guards are frantically looking for Peter. Where'd he go? What, is he under the hay? You know, how could he have disappeared? And I'm sure they're trying to do it very discreetly. You know, like, don't let Herod know. Don't let the, the centurion know. Let's just find Peter. Where, where did he go? Did he go into another cell, you know? They can't find him. Finally, they, they have to face the music and tell Herod. And it doesn't go well. Herod launches a citywide search and doesn't find Peter. So we know that he was probably, Peter probably left Jerusalem for the time being. So Herod naturally assumes that this was an inside job. These guards had something to do with it. They're trying to make me look like a fool. They're trying to ruin me in front of Rome. So he interrogates them, see if they would give him a clue. And they're like, we don't know where he went. Then he executes them. And then he leaves, he leaves town. He goes back to Caesarea. Because he didn't want to be humiliated that he had lost Peter. They lost the apostles, they lost the body of Jesus, and now he's lost Peter. He didn't want to be in that crowd with Pilate, the Sanhedrin, and the other Herods. He didn't want to be in that crowd. But he should have stayed and faced the humiliation because you get to the end of chapter 12. Herod goes and, preached, and, goes and um, gives a speech, and the people praise him as if he's a god, and he doesn't give God the glory, and God kills him right there 44 AD he, he gets some some internal virus or some internal worm it says I think in the in the book and then eventually dies a few days later Herod was king of all of that for three years wow but God providentially uses Peter here and the church and the prayers to bring amazing glory to himself now, now, don't think of God when he wants glory, that he's selfishly wanting it. I mean, it's hard for us sometimes. Everything we think is tainted by sin. We have that tinge in our mind. And we think someone who wants their own glory is very selfish, very prideful. But that's not God. He's perfect. His desire for his glory is, is deserved. He is worthy of all the glory. If you read the book of Revelations, it says it over and over and over again. He's worthy to be praised. So him seeking glory is perfect. It's perfect. It's not narcissistic. It's perfect. His glory points always points to his grace and his mercy that he's shown mankind. His kindness toward us is meant to lead us to repentance. And that's how he receives glory. When God receives the glory, all of creation will benefit from it and has benefited from it. 
and all of his followers of his son receive a blessing because of his glory. The church saw God's glory when they prayed desperately for Peter's release. They saw it come to, come to pass. They saw it take place. Even if they did not expect Peter's release, because it sounds like they didn't really expect it to happen, they gave over their will to God for his glory, whatever happened. They were, they were molding their will to him. God's providence was found in that prayer. Even though it surprised them as to how it turned out, they were submitting to God in that prayer meeting. So I want you to hear me out. Our, our church body, we need to be reawakened to the mission of the gospel. We need to be reawakened to the idea that there's a Savior out there that the world needs. So the, prim and the primary and the crucial step, I believe, and I think Scripture teaches this, and we've seen it several passages, not just this one, the primary and crucial step in revitalizing a church is prayer. Prayer. Fervent, serious, consistent, persistent prayer. Keep knocking on the door as Peter did. Keep begging. Keep asking for justice. Keep asking for God's power. We know God wants to, to use his church to bring glory to him. That's, that's a prayer request you can pray every day and expect an answer in time. God wants glory to come through his body. Prayer that begs God for help, begs God for supply for guidance, for direction, and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Wasn't that the model prayer? Prayer, no, is not Amazon. <laughs> you just can't buy it with one click. You can't mail order it in. It's not something we, we think of as we just request, and if we don't get it, we'll, you know, we, we messed up in our prayer. Prayer in faith forms our will to God's will. That's what prayer does. It's a submission. It's a surrender of what we want which is okay to ask God for what you want. Check your motives, of course, but always submitting and giving in to his will. That's what happens in prayer. There's, several, there's multiple verses in the Bible about prayer and kind of how it applies. I'm going to go through a couple, a few here. 2 Chronicles 7.14, probably one that's very familiar. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... I will hear their prayers and heal their land. That land is not talking about dirt, geography, or nations. It's talking about the church. It's talking about the body of Christ. It instructs people. That, that verse instructs the people of God to pray, to humble themselves, to seek his face continuously. Psalms 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I haven't fully figured out exactly how much delighting I have to do to actually get the desires of my heart, but I know that it's a complete surrender to his will. It starts with that. Delighting yourself in the Lord. Everything is about God's glory. That's, that's where it is. Whew, so hard to get there, though, as humans. John 14, 14, Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room, ask anything of me in my name and I will do it for you. Now, that in my name, we, we, we put Jesus' name at the end of every prayer, but that's a, that's a bigger fish than just a closing to a prayer. It is a submission to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what in his name means. God's will, God's plan, Jesus' way governing our prayers. John 15, 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. 
Same scene, same setting in the upper room. Learn his words. Read his Bible. Learn what he's told us. Pray that. It'll help us surrender our wills and follow him no matter what happens. 1 John 5, 14 through 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us, we know that we have what we asked of him. But it goes back to in his will. In his will. So if we don't always know what his will exactly is, we submit to whatever his will is going to be. That's what prayer does. The, James 5.16 tells us the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. You're made righteous in the blood of Jesus Christ. You are a righteous person. So use your prayer to find the sovereign providential will of God. When we pray and ask our heart's desire, and there's nothing wrong with that. If you need to ask, you want to ask for a million dollars, ask for a million dollars. You probably can't handle it, but hey, you could ask for it. When we pray and we ask for our heart's desires, we really are asking God to conform our desires to his will as he reveals things, as he brings things out. Like the church was praying for Peter's release. They did not let James's death stop them. They didn't let them, that's, oh man, we prayed, but that didn't work, so what else are we going to do? Let's storm the prison. <laughs> nope, that wouldn't have worked either. They didn't let James's death stop them from praying for Peter. We need to realize that. We must never stop praying. We mean, as, as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing, always giving God a chance to work. Pray for God to gain glory from his church. If we stop praying for God's glory to be done here, we are not seeking God's glory and we will not survive. So we need to heed the lesson that we see here in the, in the first church, early church, as they faced a very difficult thing. The loss of one of the apostles and the imprisonment of Jesus. Prayer is an act of faith in the providence of a good, good father. Prayer is an act of faith in the providence of a good, good father. They were praying all night at Mary's house, hoping that Jesus would answer in a positive way. The persecuted church of Jerusalem prayed for a miracle. They prayed for a miracle. And God gave it. But in the meantime, they also learned never to lose faith, to keep praying. And even though we only see God's secret will sometimes when it's actually revealed, you know, kind of hindsight, he expects us to pray all the time with submissive hearts. He expects us to always be asking God's will to be done and, and accepting it and meaning it. Prayer is always an act of faith in God, a surrender to him, surrendering to him our will, a request for his purposes to be accomplished. So let's take some time now in our silent pastoral prayer time to pray that we will never, never stop praying for the glory of God to be seen here. And that's a prayer we know he will answer. And so let's have some time of prayer. If you'd like to come to the front and pray, feel free to do that. We'll pray silently for a few minutes and then I'll close us out. So let's pray.